Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to search the Scriptures with me for a few moments as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. It's an obvious fact to anybody picking up a Bible and investigating the first three books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus came bringing a message which he delivered with the utmost urgency. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel in this case, of course, was the gospel about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the heart and the center of everything that Jesus taught. The kingdom of God is the master word in Jesus' theology. It's the word in which the genius of Christianity is concentrated. Not to understand the kingdom of God is to misunderstand the entirety of Jesus' mission. Oh, we may understand bits and pieces of it, the fact that he died for our sins, even that he rose from the dead. But without a grasp of the kingdom of God, one has lost the vital connection between Jesus and that 77% of our Bible we call the Old Testament, and which we really should call the Hebrew Bible. Think not, Jesus said, that I came to destroy the Old Testament. I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to bring them to fulfillment. Jesus, you see, as claiming to be the Messiah, was claiming also to be the promised seed, the object of the promise made to Abraham. The whole biblical drama, the whole great design and plan of God's salvation, his design to give you immortality. Surely this would be something worth paying attention to. That whole plan is based on what God promised to Abraham. That's why Christians in the Bible are said to be the sons of Abraham. Let me read it to you in Romans 4 and verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that Abraham might be the father of all who believe, the father of the Christians, that's to say. And in the very next verse, in Romans 4 and verse 12, Paul speaks of Christians as those who, and I quote, follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. And again, in verse 16 of Romans 4, Paul speaks of the faith of Abraham. Abraham, you see, was a Christian before Christ. That's to say, he believed in God's great salvation plan by looking forward to the messianic promises and those promises, in fact, were delivered to him. He was given the promise of an ultimate descendant, who, according to Galatians 3.16, was the Messiah, and Abraham was given the promise of the land in perpetuity. God's contract with Abraham was that he would receive the gift of the land, that he would be a beneficiary of this great contract to give him the land, and that he would own the land forever. Now, Abraham died without receiving that great promise. That's stated clearly in Hebrews 11 and verse 13. All these died, we read, and the all in this case refers to the patriarchs, the official fathers of the Israelite people and our Christian spiritual fathers. All these patriarchs died in faith without receiving the promises the promise of the land that is in perpetuity. And in Hebrews 11:39, we read the same thing again. All these heroes of faith, having gained approval through their faith, 
did not receive what God had promised them, so that without us they would not be made perfect. Hebrews 11, verses 13, 39, and 40. No wonder then in the previous chapter, in Hebrews 10 and verse 35, the writer had said, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The reward indeed is to become a beneficiary of the inheritance promised to Abraham, promised to Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus and baptized and believing the faith as Jesus taught it, then the inheritance is promised to you also. Galatians 3.29 informs us of our status as Christians. Paul there said, If you're a Christian, then you can't, legally that is, you can't as Abraham's seed or descendants, and you Christians are heirs of the promises made to Abraham. The promise made to Abraham was that he would live in the land forever. The only possible way in which that promise can be fulfilled is if God resurrects Abraham and brings him into the land, into the kingdom of God. That's why in the Bible everything depends on the future resurrection. It's simply wrong to say that you can come into the presence of Jesus the moment you die. If that were the case, you wouldn't need to be resurrected. There's only one way out of death, and that's by resurrection. You remember how Hannah, in her famous song in 1 Samuel 2, spoke of God bringing down to the grave, or to Hades, and raising up from Hades. And Hannah herself had her eye on that great promise of the restored earth as it will be when Jesus returns. Hannah spoke of the faithful as being exalted to positions of rulership in the kingdom of God. God's great plan for the earth is to have his faithful people in his place and to have them there in power ruling the world. That's the objective that God has laid before us. That's why we're praying, Thy kingdom come. And that's why Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, those who develop that characteristic of meekness and gentleness, that unassuming character of meekness which Jesus recommended. Blessed are those people, Jesus said. They're going to have the earth as their inheritance, Matthew 5, verse 5, and they're going to rule as kings upon the earth, Revelation 5, verse 10. I like very much the way the Jerusalem Bible translates that magnificent passage in the fifth chapter of Revelation. Let me read you that passage beginning with verse 6. Then I saw, John says, in the middle of the throne with its four living creatures and the circle of the elders, a lamb standing that seemed to have been sacrificed. It had seven horns and it had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that God has sent out over the whole world. And the Lamb came forward to take the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. That was God the Father, by the way, the one sitting on the throne. And when the Lamb took the scroll, the four living creatures prostrated themselves before him, and with them the twenty-four elders. Each one of them was holding a harp and had a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new hymn. You addressing the Lamb here, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals because you were sacrificed and with your blood you bought people for God of every race, language, people and nation and you made them into a line of kings and priests for God to rule the world. Revelation 5 verses 6 through 10 
Now, there's a little weakness in the last phrase in that translation because the Greek original actually says, you made them into a line of kings and priests for God and they will reign as kings upon the earth or in the land, in the land of Israel. We might equally well translate that. But the point is that the rulership promised here for God's people is to be on the earth. They're going to be kings on the earth. That's why Jesus said we're to pray, Thy kingdom come. May the time come when God takes charge of the earth again and rescues it from the power of the devil, finally, by sending his son, his agent, the Messiah, the Son of God, to rule in the kingdom with the saints. And they're going to rule as kings upon the earth. Many Christians don't seem to realize that Jesus is actually coming back. He's not coming here to pay a visit to the earth and to whisk people off to some super celestial region in the sky. No, he's coming back to the earth to rule on the earth and the saints are going to rule on the earth with him. Revelation 5 verse 10. It's obvious that if the saints are ruling on the earth and if they're going to be with Jesus Christ at that time, then Jesus Christ also will have to be on the earth at his second coming. And from then onwards, Jesus is coming back to the earth. He's not just coming to visit. He's coming to stay. Remember the famous promise given by the angels in Acts 1.11? This same Jesus, they said, who is now disappearing into the sky, will come back in like manner. He's going to return to the earth and rule with his saints on the earth. That's why then he was able to promise his followers an inheritance of the land or the earth. Matthew 5 and verse 5. Now, God's great plan to establish his people in power in his place, that's to say, on the earth when Jesus returns, is based on the promises made to Abraham and the promises made to Israel. The promise that the faithful are going to exercise authority as kings and priests comes straight out of Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. Let me read you that passage beginning with verse 3. Moses, we read, then went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain, saying, Say this to the house of Jacob, Tell the Israelites, You've seen for yourselves what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you away on eagles' wings and brought you to me. So now, if you're really prepared to obey me and keep my covenant, you, out of all peoples, will be my personal possession, for the whole world is mine. For me you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. Now that promise that Israel would become priests and kings and be God's special possession, that's to say they were to be the representatives of God on the earth, just incidentally as Adam was supposed to have been, but he failed so dismally, remember, when he and his wife Eve sold out to the clever tricks of the devil. Well, Israel was supposed to take up that destiny which had been planned for Adam in the first place. Israel was to be constituted a line of kings and priests, a royal priesthood, and they were to function as God's representatives on the earth and bring the Abrahamic blessings to the whole world. Now, the story of Israel in the Old Testament shows that they failed also. There came a time when God actually expelled them from the land which he'd promised to give them, into which land he had brought them, of course, as you remember, with Joshua. But when Solomon and other kings of Israel and Judah failed to keep the covenant and to obey God, they were disqualified from inheritance of the land and they were expelled from it. 
You'll remember the episode in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar took the people of Judah captive and placed them in Babylon. After that time, a straggling remnant of Jewish people returned to the land. They tried to set up the kingdom and the throne of David, but it never succeeded. The last member of the house of Israel to sit on the throne of David had in fact been Zedekiah, who was ignominiously dragged off to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar and blinded there. From that point in history onwards, there has never been anybody sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And yet when Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel said that God had destined to give to his son, the Messiah, to Jesus, the throne of his father David, according to the terms of the contract made between God and the family of David in Second Samuel 7. And that contract made with David was really only an extension of the earlier covenant and contract made with Abraham. Sarah and Abraham had been told that from their line of descendants, kings would come. And that indeed did happen from the time when David became king of Israel and Solomon and the other kings of Israel and Judah. But that royal line ceased with the death of Zedekiah. How then, we may ask, can that royal line be perpetuated forever according to the contract and covenants made with Abraham and David. Our time is running out for today. We don't have time to deal with that question, but we will in subsequent programs. Meanwhile, write to us for our free book on the kingdom of God, an article on the covenants made with Abraham, and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.